Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty world. Well, welcome to Rock Guard Part 2. I want to welcome you. And can we hear it for the band? They do an amazing job every week. Awesome stuff. Great to have them. You can't really have a series called Rock God without a little Aerosmith. They are the bad boys from Boston, actually. One of Rock's enduring acts, anchored by frontman Steven Tyler and guitarist Joe Perry. Actually, I was only four years old when they hit the mainstream in 1975 with Toys in the Attic. That began a run that has literally spanned three decades. That's incredible to me. They have now become the best-selling American hard rock band of all time. They've actually sold 150 million copies worldwide. And uh, yeah, incredible. And now they're actually being introduced to an entirely new generation through the video game, right? Guitar hero, Aerosmith, which is devoted to the band's music. Um, you guys probably know some of their greatest hits, right? Love in an elevator. Good times right there. Um, we talked about doing Dude Looks Like a Lady, um, but it didn't really match in the Gospels there. But you know, Walk This Way, all that stuff. I actually did have a chance to see Aerosmith live one summer at the Art Center down in Homedale. You guys know the great lawn down there. Who's seen a concert down there? It's awesome. Amphitheater outside. And ironically, I had been there just three weeks earlier for an entirely different type of concert. I went with some friends who gave Colleen and I free tickets to the New York City Philharmonic Orchestra which was a little bit different kind of concert experience there. I remember because um, it was very different clientele. Uh, Couples spread blankets out on the lawn. They had platters of cheese, and they sipped wine. They were sipping Pinot Grigio as they listened to, you know, the Philharmonic Orchestra. Very classy, kind of understated, anything but a rock show. And it was funny because they played Mozart, they played Chopin, you know, violin and strings. And uh, uh, the guy next to us, he and I guess it was his wife, he was wearing starched khakis, and he kept his eyes closed the whole time with his Chablis, you know, going like this kind of to the music. And I'll never forget, at a break in the music, the guy said very, very loudly, kind of so everyone could hear him, he said to his wife, he said, don't you just love the precision of the oboe? (laughs) And uh, it was hilarious, it was so pretentious. It actually became, it's kind of running joke with Colleen and I, you know, the rest of that summer, it'd be like, you know, don't you just love the precision of the oboe? And uh, fast forward three weeks, I go to the same amphitheater to see Aerosmith, with some buddies from college, same lawn, little different demographic. Um, there was no, you know, Chardonnay. It was a Miller High Life crowd, and uh, no blankets, shoulder to shoulder. Most of the people were wearing concert tees with the sleeves ripped off, and the guys had sleeves ripped off as well. And uh, the, the guy next to us was hilarious because he had on one of those like, you know, Cat Diesel power trucker hats and the chain, the whole thing, bleach blonde hair. His girlfriend had. You ever see Dog the Bounty Hunter? Look, look, look like that, okay? And, and his wife was the same way, wife, whoever she, he was with, same way. And they yelled and whistled the entire show, and he kept going, play, walk this way, talk this way. You know that one. He's going crazy, kind of yelling in the ear. And finally, Aerosmith plays it, and he goes nuts. He goes, walk this way, talk this way, walk this way. And then he, like, in his enthusiasm, turns to me and goes, just give me a kiss, like this. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, easy there, uh, dude. And with that, he turns and he grabs his girlfriend and he plants this big, wet kiss on her face. And he looks at her and he just goes, I love you, baby. And she's like, I love you, dog. And they start making out, you know, in front of everyone, you know. I'm just like, oh, gosh. I, I turned to my friend and said, don't you just love the precision of the oboe? You know, it's... 
the, re- the reason I tell you this is that it was interesting to me how two couples who would both consider themselves music lovers wound up in the exact same spot doing the exact same thing, taking in a concert, and yet experienced the music in two entirely different ways. When you think about the couple, for instance, who was at the Philharmonic concert, they, they kind of accessed the music and enjoyed it primarily through their intellect. I love the precision of the oboe, the, the instrumentation, the, the, the notes on the, on the page. Uh, you know, music was an intellectual exercise. They, they, they loved the composition. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the couple in the Aerosmith t-shirts accessed music kind of through primal emotion, right? How it made them feel, the raw energy, I love you, dog, I love you, you know, kind of thing. And it's very interesting to me because most of us identify with one way or the other. You process life through one of these channels, intellect or emotion. Which one do you skew? Are you mainly intellect or are you doing more emotion? Intellects kind of look down on stuff like Aerosmith because they're like, okay, dude looks like a lady. That is not music, okay? It's like... Or emotional types like, you know, whatever. How can you, you snobs listen to that elevator stuff? But the reality is, neither one is really like wrong per se. I mean, both engage music just through different channels. One through like kind of logic and reason. And one through the intense feelings and the raw energy that it generates. The interesting thing is that people tend to approach faith the same way. Through one of these primary channels. Have you ever been, for instance, in a church that values intellect over emotion. I grew up in kind of an intellectual church. It was a pretty button-down church, a little bit uptight, and and when you went on Sunday, you you wore your best, you acted very polite, no one ever smiled during services, and during worship, certainly, nobody ever did this, the raising hands business, okay? It was like, even if you did feel a little something, it was like there was this invisible force field that your belt was like, I can't get my hands up now, you know, kind of thing. And uh, what we refer to, my buddies and I, we would always say, oh yeah, we go to the church of the frozen chosen. If you're Roman Catholic or, or you're Presbyterian, you know what I'm talking about, right? The church of the frozen chosen. We weren't overly emotional. Faith is largely an academic exercise that appeals to your mind. So we would study verse by verse, seeking to understand the original meaning of the Greek or the Hebrew. Sometimes you'd need a dictionary. I actually still have a binder full of sermon notes. And and here's the thing. I am actually very, very grateful for all I learned in my years with the frozen chosen. I credit much of my theology and biblical knowledge to that that time of my upbringing there. But then college came, and I met my wife, Colleen. We started dating. And when I visited her church, the church she grew up in, I was like, whoa. Because it was in the Bronx, and there was no stained glass it was in an old egg factory, and there was this, when I walked in, there was a band playing, and there were people in the aisles, and, and some of the people are kind of swaying like this. Some of them have their shoes off, and some of them are doing this. They brought their own tambourines. They're going Steven Tyler in the aisles. Woo! Waving flags. You ever been to a church like this? Okay, I mean, it was like high emotion. So if my church was the frozen chosen, Colleen's church was full of the happy clappies. And, and, and you have these different styles, you know, worshiping the same God, but, but, but a lot of emotion. And, and people, even during the message, would be like, preach it, say it again. I was like, whoa, you're talking to the preacher. Wow. And afterwards, we walked out of there. It was so different. I actually said to Colleen, I said, so, so are, you, are you actually a Christian? Like, well, this seems like a totally different faith. Because at first, it was like this point of real disconnect for us. 
Faith was important for both of us, and we, we both, you know, experienced God, but the way we experienced him seemed miles apart. New York Philharmonic, Aerosmith. Presbyterian, Pentecostal. Maybe you've had a similar experience or you've felt the tension between these two approaches to faith. Well, Jesus has an encounter in Luke chapter 7 that really shows how close the two are and how far apart and how we might bridge the distance if we are able to actually love God with both our what? Our mind as well as our heart, our emotion, which scripture actually says that's the point of life. So let's do this. Take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 7. It's on page 717. This is encounter number two in Rock God. And uh, let's see what we can glean. Encounter number two Jesus has here in the Gospel of Luke. And it says this. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. That is, she's a sinner. And Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you, Her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Very interesting contrast here between two people who encounter Jesus but approach him through two very different channels. On the one hand, you have Simon, who is a Pharisee, and that means he was a member of the religious and cultural elite that ruled the day. Pharisees were scholars. They were the church people. They were well-educated. They were well-respected, well-healed. And the Pharisees embodied very much kind of buttoned-up religion in many ways. Faith was something that you put your best foot forward for. You debated theology. In fact, that's why he probably invited Jesus over for dinner so they could dialogue about matters of faith and morality and God and life and all the big important questions of life. Here's actually a very interesting little uh, cultural tidbit here. When they dined, notice it says that they reclined at the table. And that's kind of interesting to us. Dinner guests in that day, first century, would actually lie on cushions on the floor with their head closest to the table and prop themselves up on a cushion with their legs extending away from the table. So their feet would be the farthest away from the table, sandals off so they could be washed with water by the servants, okay? 
So you'd have all these, imagine all these guys, these academic religious leaders laying around this giant square table on the floor, debating about what it means to really know God at this dinner party. Now, what's interesting is that this was not a closed dinner party. It might have had exclusive guest lists, but these parties were always open to the public because anytime you had like a public figure as famous as Jesus, the host was obliged to actually leave the front door open so that anyone in the public could just come in and kind of stand on the sidelines and listen to the conversation of the religious elite so they could hopefully absorb and glean some wisdom. Now, what happens, we're told, is that a woman who led a what? A sinful life steps forward and she breaks all the rules of religious etiquette. Out of the corner of her room, she, she, she pushes her way forward and she's overcome with what? Intense emotion, big time. She starts not just crying, weeping, weeping openly. And she begins touching the guest of honor, crying in front of Jesus, and then begins wiping his feet with her tears and her hair. And this like cranks Simon big time. Why? Not just because she crashes the party. She was actually allowed to be on the sidelines. But because here's a woman of ill repute, and she would have defiled the gathering. See, see the, look at the phrase. A woman who had lived a sinful life in that town gets lost in our English translation here just a little bit because the Greek actually says she was a woman of the city, someone known on the streets. That it means she was a street walker, and she had lived a sinful life. And every Greek scholar says that this is absolutely a way of saying that this woman was a prostitute. It gets lost here because, you know, the guys who made the NIV, they want to be all polite, but they don't really know how to translate hoochie mama. But that's what we're talking here. This is not just someone who's like, you know, played around, but she invested her life, very sad, in actually selling herself to men. And so you understand why Simon gets cranked. This is his formal dinner party. All the great religious minds are here in this whore interrupts to give Jesus a foot wash. Scandalous. Now, to his credit, he's a good host. He doesn't immediately boot her. But he begins privately thinking why in the world Jesus seems to tolerate her. Verse 39 says, He said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he could, like, knew everything, he'd know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is. That she is a what? A sinner. That's how buttoned-up religion works. Any Pharisee would have been aghast that a respected rabbi and alleged prophet like Jesus would let a streetwalker touch him. What's up with that? See, it's amazing. In their desire for purity, the, the Pharisees were more than just religious scholars. They were like legal scholars. And they constructed a list of over 700 rules and regulations you had to follow to avoid contact with sinners. It was about drawing sharp boundaries and adhering to the strict code of contact. You had to strain your, your, your water through a filter to catch the gnats so you had nothing unclean in you. That's the church I grew up in, <laughs> okay? It was buttoned-up religion, literally. You, you dress the part, and the reality is you dress down anybody on the outside. You, you got to judge others whose lives were a moral mess. See, in contrast to, to buttoned-up religion, the woman comes to Jesus— for a relationship where she can let her hair down, literally. Watch, it says this. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. And this is a tender moment. Because she approaches 
him on her knees. And she is overcome with emotion. She's weeping. And she does something that would have scandalized everyone watching. She lets down her hair to dry his feet, which you would never do in the first century public culture. You'd never do that in front of people. In the first century, a woman could only let down her hair before her husband in private. In public, if if you took your hair down before men, it was actually grounds for divorce. You know why? Think about this, all right? Now, we've all seen, you know, women in the movies, they let their hair down, whoosh, right? You know why. It's still the same thing 2,000 years later. Let's imagine married men. You, uh, let's say you take your wife out to dinner. Let's take, let's take her to a nice place. Let's go to the Olive Garden. You're at the Olive Garden, just the two of you, cozy little corner in the Olive Garden, and all of a sudden, guys, you're just, you're sitting there, you're cutting your, your, uh, your pasta or whatever. Oh, what a nice moment here. High-tech staging. Uh, you're cutting your pasta, and out of the corner of your eye, you see a woman coming towards you in fishnet stockings. And now you're getting a little bit nervous because she looks at you and she sees you, and her eyes go wide, and now she's coming towards your table. You're like, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. And she comes to your table, she goes, hi. And, and her eyes start brimming with tears. And your wife is like, what the, you know? And, and she takes her hairs up, and she takes this clip out of her hair and goes, <sighs> And she gets down and starts kissing your feet. Now, what does your wife say at this moment? Who is she? She would rightly assume that you two have a what? A relationship, yes? You could say, I don't, I don't really know. You'll be like, please. There's clearly something gone going on between you two. There seems to be a passion, a relationship. Is this a, the, it'd be shocking because the display of emotion, the intimate exposure, the, the worship would have been a scandal. That's exactly how the Pharisees felt. Does he even know? Who th- he knows who this woman is. She's a sinner. See, buttoned up religious types, we have a hard time with relationships. The idea of letting your hair down and letting people see who you really are, warts and all, is very, very difficult for us to do. I know. That's my heritage. In my church, we could recite the Ten Commandments. We could quote Bible verses about loving others. But the moment we stepped on the street, we would define ourselves about who we avoided. Because there were people who were falling short of God's, you know, standard. There were the people who drank too much, the people who prayed too little, the liberals, the gays, the couples living together, the couples getting divorced, and the list goes on and on and on and on, subsection C. That's how Simon religion works. It's approaching God primarily with the head, with your judgment of others, and then actually of God. Jesus, you should know better. And in contrast, this woman comes to Jesus with her what? With her her heart. She literally lays the mess of her life at Jesus' feet, and the tears just flow, and she's vulnerable. And in essence, she's saying to Jesus, if you are who you say you are, Can I be honest about who I really am? The mess I've made of my life. The brokenness of it. She approaches Jesus on this very primal kind of emotional level with her heart laid bare her whole life, not just her intellect. She lets her hair down and it's a relationship with tears. And it's a relationship with touch because it's personal. And a relationship is a lot messier than Simon religion, which mainly stays up in the cabeza. This may be weird to actually hear said in church, but the truth is this. There's benefits to being a world-class sinner. You're like, can I quote you on that? No, 
See, growing up for me, nothing spectacular happened in my life. When you talk about like spectacular brokenness, I made mistakes, but I didn't like, you know, you know, drink or drop out of college or or get a girl pregnant. So so those are the external boundary markers that Pharisees kind of set up. They're the spectacular sins. And it, and it handicaps, in some respect, our, 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 our ability to actually experience God in a deeply personal way because we see other people who are screwing up royalty and think, well, that's not me. You know, I'm a good person. I live the right way, and I don't, what, relate to that. So instead, we're content to judge. So when I visited Colleen's church in the Bronx, I walked in and looked around and said, oh, gosh, this is exactly the kind of thing that turns me off. Her church was actually in the inner city, very diverse. There were people straight off the streets in there. There were dope dealers literally who were cleaning up their life. There were pushers. And like every third person when I walked in would go, hey, great to see you, brother, and give me this giant hug. And I'd be like, oh, okay, thanks, ah, you know, kind of thing. People clapping, crying in the service, outpouring of emotion. And I was like, well, isn't this anti-electual? This is dumbed-down religion. See, the frozen chosen who don't feel their need for God because most of their life, they've actually been able to keep the rules. And this is, well, it's too, it's too emotional. It's too personal. And that's a shame. Because in this encounter, guess who's embraced by Jesus and who winds up rejected? Look at it. Look at the text. In the end, Jesus embraces the humble hooker and smacks Simon on the muzzle and sends him away. Shouldn't that matter to you? You're like, whoa, what are you saying? Are you saying... You're saying Jesus is an Aerosmith fan? No, don't, don't miss the point here. Jesus tells Simon a story so that he won't miss it. Look at this. In verse 40, he says this. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, there, there's just stop because there's an irony here. Remember, Simon never actually spoke and verbalized what he was thinking because he's kind of up in the head. Look at verse 39. He says, Simon said to himself, if this man were a prophet, I mean, he'd know who's touching him. In other words, he says this to himself. He's thinking this through in his head because when you have a detached, primarily cerebral approach to faith, it stays all up here. And Jesus is literally dining in his house, and he is clearly more than a prophet. He literally reads Simon's thoughts. This is so important because he knows everything Simon's thinking, and Simon still isn't able to see it. I mean, you know your faith is caught up in your head when you can't, even, you can't even recognize the living, breathing God sitting right in front of you. For all of his intelligence, all of his academic study of God and the religious life, Simon is clueless about who God really is. That's amazing to me. And it's scary because it's actually saying you can sit in church week after week and go through the motions and lead a good life and still have no idea who Jesus really is. Is that disturbing? I mean, for all his intelligence, there's a blindness here. There's a lack of self-awareness. There's a lack of Christ-awareness because that's what pride does. It blinds us to our own need. And yet this woman, this, this prostitute who's on the social margins is able to recognize Jesus exactly for who he is because she comes in humility and this is the contrast Jesus sets up in the story that he tells. It says, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, by the way, whenever Jesus says that, watch out. <laughs> okay? And he says, tell me, what's the phrase he uses? Tell me, teacher. Notice Jesus is teacher, not personal Lord and Savior. Not God, not master to Simon. There's a big difference. Because why? Religion 
is primarily about learning the rules. There are good things you do. There are good things you don't do. Teacher, teach me your message. I don't want the messenger. I just want the message that will tell me how to live my life. And, and Jesus says, okay, you, you don't get this. <laughs> okay. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, which you don't have to do the math. That was the equivalent of two years' wages. And the other, 50, which was two months' pay, okay? So you've got like two years' wages versus two months' pay. Both are in debt. And Jesus says this. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of who? Both. Now, which of them, Jesus says, will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. It's like he's right, oh gosh. And Jesus says, you've judged correctly. See, if you are religious, most religious people make the assumption that they're good outweighs their bad, and on that level, God will accept them and let them come into heaven. And in that broad sense, everybody's religious, I suppose, on some level, right? Ask most people on the street, uh, you know, how, do you know you're going to heaven? Well, I think I've led a good life. I think my good kind of outweighs my bad. Maybe that's you. Maybe you think that way. But Jesus is like, think again. He likens our condition before God to being in debt, and if you've lived with debt, you know how heavy this is to live. And he's like, Simon, Simon, some people have a, have a big debt, Two years' wages, and some have a little debt, two months' worth. The problem is, neither of them can pay it back. Neither of them have a penny to pay it back. And in the first century, the amount didn't matter. Both actually would have gone to debtor's prison unless someone from the outside spotted them and paid their debt. See, when you have a debt, no matter the size, someone always has to pay it. If you're in college, your parents bail you out. (laughs) The problem with Simon, and with most of us who come through buttoned-up religion, is that we're pretty sure, honestly, I mean, it's a, it's a lot, but I think I can cover the spread myself because it's not that big. I only got a 50 kind of life, not a 500. Isn't that what some of you think? That's what I thought. If you are by nature a, a good person, you have no spectacular messy failures in your life, you figure any debt I owe to God, I can probably somehow pay off myself because that's religion. When all is said and done, our good outweighs our bad. And on that basis, God's going to accept us. I mean, that's why we study religion, right? That's why I come to church, to learn ethics, to learn, you know, the best, the code to live by. That's what Simon religion is. It's nothing personal. It's a life improvement plan. It's six steps to better living. A set of morals you can aspire to. And we believe falsely, therefore, that you can be your own savior. Because you don't need anyone to pay that debt. Because my debt's a 50, not, um, let's see, 500 like her. I'm a priest, not a prostitute. So we trust that our good outweighs our bad. And at the end of the day, hope God graves on the curve. And it's crazy. Because the truth of the story is that sin is sin. It's, it's rebellion against God, the Bible says, that actually leads to spiritual death. And debt is dead. <laughs> and Jesus says neither of them could pay him back. What's his point? The size of your sin before a holy God doesn't matter. If you're, if you're a good person and you're religious and you're trying to save yourself through your good deeds, you're dead because your sin is pride. Your sin is pride. You can't even be honest about your need to actually humble yourself because you mainly measure goodness in relation to others' brokenness when the real measure is God's holiness, his moral perfection. Simon was sitting at the feet of the only man who has ever lived a sinless life. No wonder you don't need a savior because you look at your buttoned up life and her broken life and assume, well, I'm not that bad. And so you get stuck. 
Because the others fall way short, but not you. And here's what you get. Here's what you get. This is why some people want to avoid you. Because you have this empty-hearted, moralistic religion, which may be nice and tidy, but it lacks passion because you've never tasted the grace of Christ who gave his life to pay your debt. You got to understand something, guys. This is easier. Simon religion is easier because you always will be, you'll end up with this detached cerebral approach to faith with a spirituality that mainly is about good behavior because you get to play the role of God, declaring some people good, like you, or bad, like her. And it's just an awful way to relate to others. It's quite honestly why most people don't like others who are religious or go to church. Because religious people are horrible to be around. They do not know what to do or where to begin when they encounter the messiness of actually a real life. In fact, let me go there. Back to Colleen's happy, clappy church. As I got to know my wife, um, she began to actually let her hair down and tell me the details of her upbringing, which was anything but uh, happy clappy. Some of you know a few details of her story. Um, Colleen's mom actually gave birth to her as a teenager. Uh, she had Colleen at 19 years old and, uh, and then ran away from home. She was divorced by 20, and this was in the early 70s, and she actually moved to New York City and got caught up in the 70s lifestyle. And uh, in the 70s, kind of crazy time, and Colleen was exposed prematurely to all sorts of adult things. I don't even, just drugs, men, the whole party scene, everything. Things no child should see or be exposed to when they're five years old. I won't go into detail, but if, if you ever have a chance to talk with her and hear her story, you wouldn't believe it because you'd, you'd look at my beautiful, grace-filled wife and think, with a childhood like that, you should not be normal. That is craziness. And, uh, you know, the reality is, um, you know, it's like people are like, well, what happened? I guess time heals all wounds? Not exactly. See, at the age of 12, Colleen's mom was actually in a band, and she was hired to sing at a wedding of all things, a Christian wedding. And she was hired to sing Ave Maria. And in his homily, the pastor at the wedding presented for the first time the gospel. Colleen's mom was standing there, and she remembers hearing how he talked about this good news, and here is the good news, that God came to earth in a personal way, in the person of Jesus, to personally pay the debt of, of our sin before God, no matter the size. Big debts, teeny debts, doesn't matter. He said, Christ's sacrifice on the cross pays for everyone. You don't have to live with guilt. You can have a fresh start. So whether you've done drugs or you've dealt them, whether you have a broken marriage or you broke one up, whether you've killed a man in your sleep or just slandered one with your words, Everything falls short of God's glory, and it doesn't matter what you've done or where you've been. God loves you, and Christ died for you. A personal death for your personal sins, and he wants to be your personal savior and give you a clean white slate. And it may sound impossible to you, but what's impossible with man is possible with God because Christ accepts us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way, so he changes us by his spirit, and it's possible. And Colleen's mom, who was singing in the band that day, she heard that truth, and she took it to heart. How does that sound to a young woman who's made a wreck of her life? In the middle of that wedding ceremony, she prayed, Jesus, I give my life to you, and I've made a wreck of it. And I am sorry, and I'm trusting you, Lord. If this is true, please pay for my sins. Change me. Make me a new person. Come into my, into my heart. And do you know what happened? God answered her prayer 
I mean, if you hear Colleen tell it, and she says, you know, I don't see a ton of miracles. She goes, but her, my mom, she was changed. She actually does call it a miracle because she says within literally a week, the drugs, the men, the parting, it stopped. It all stopped. Colleen's mom quit her band and actually joined the church choir, the happy clappy choir. And Colleen, who at this point was age 12, was literally like, who, 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 what'd you do with my mom? I mean, as you can imagine, um, she was a bit cynical. She was a kind of a streetwise kid, and she was literally like, is this for real, or is this just the next phase, or, or did something really change my mom? But because of her mom's drastic turnaround, Colleen was like, I don't know if it's real, but this is a miracle. And so Colleen went with her mom to church, and the way she describes it is that when she walked in, she rolled her eyes, because all the holy rollers they had their raised hands, and they're doing their hallelujah business, and she was like, she's like, you know, I'm 12 years old, and I'm like, whatever that is. But slowly, weak. By week after week, God came for her heart too. And at age 12, my wife gave her life to Jesus Christ. This is where it chokes me up because for a 12-year-old girl who'd seen so much, for God to reach in and say, I can change this. I can change this. Come at me with your whole life. Lay it all out before me. And Colleen can tell you that she was sitting in church one Sunday. She said she remembers sitting in the pew, and, and, and the preacher was talking about the sins of the, of, of the Father being visited from generation to generation. She felt like God was saying to her, was yours is the generation where this ends. No more destruction, no more sin, and I'm giving you a new life. And I'm your father now. And to a little girl who doesn't have a daddy, those are very powerful words. And she says, that's the day where my faith moved from here to here. I can't, I can't do it justice. But she felt God's spirit in a very palpable way, breaking the cycle of sin and devastation that her parents began and staking her to a fresh start. And here I am, standing in the back of her church, her spiritual home with my arms crossed, judging these people. Now who has the greater sin? (laughs) Folks, the truth is that the deeper the grace, the sweeter the emotion. That's the point of Jesus' story. What's the difference between being 50 in debt and 500? If you see your sin in the light of God, whether it's spectacular external brokenness or just blindness to the pride and the arrogance inside our heart. If you see yourself as the greater debtor, you will experience the mercy of Christ in a deeply personal way and the love will flow back out of you. That's how Jesus ends. He concludes, he says, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. But he who has forgiven little loves little. The deeper the grace, the sweeter the emotion. It turns out, this is what's kind of crazy, it turns out that true faith, saving faith, is actually a matter of this much, 18 inches. That's how far apart these are. You know what 18 inches is? It's the distance between here and here. There will be some people who miss eternity by that much.
by that much, by 18 inches. Jesus says, I want every part of you. I don't want just your head. I want your heart too. And unless you humble yourself and see yourself in the light of who I am, and actually come to me personally to bridge this gap, you will be stuck with Simon religion. It's all up here, moralistic, legalistic, and eventually judgmental and proud. That's the problem with religious people. That's who I used to be. That's why I get upset about this, because I think I just look at myself then, and I said, oh. the only way to feel good about yourself, quite honestly, is comparing yourself with others who you judge to be worse. I'm going to heaven. I'm a good person. Really? How do you know? Well, I'm not like, um, I don't know, her. Not like a prostitute or a, a Presbyterian <laughs> or a Pentecostal. It's spiritual arrogance. It's the essence of pride and it's ugly. The truth is there will be people who miss eternity by this much, 18 inches, because they knew all about God here but never experienced him here. Their faith never traveled the longest distance known to man, 18 inches, and they'll get to heaven and hear, you, you, Maxwell Smart, you missed it by that much. Don't miss eternity by 18 inches. Do not settle for a detached, impersonal faith where you get to be your own savior. Offer Christ your full heart with all its brokenness and brutal honesty and invite him to pay your debt and change you personally for good. I, like, I look at this passage I was thinking about, I was praying about this week, and I'm like, I wonder what it was like for this woman to hear these words in front of everybody in her town to actually hear Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. You are no longer a woman of the street, forever used and abused, but a dearly loved daughter of God. What was that like for that woman? What kind of, what kind of labels and hopelessness had, 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 had she had over a lifetime of, of sexual brokenness? Every man she'd ever known had treated her as something to use and throw away. Undoubtedly, somewhere along the way, it came to define us. And when she comes to Jesus weeping, washes his feet with her tears, pours out this jar of perfume, she's saying, if you are who you say you are and you love me the way you say you love me, then I'm holding nothing back and I'm letting my hair down before you and here's who I am. And she took her alabaster jar, which which probably held a sweet perfume called Nard. She cracked the neck open in those days and poured it at his feet. In the first century, that jar was a symbol of a woman's beauty and her worth. And it was expensive, probably her entire savings and lifetime of a prostitute there. And she says, I pour it all out at your feet. Take all of me, the broken parts, and change me with your love. Again, every man she'd ever let her hair down for used her and walked away. But with Jesus, she lets her hair down and she experiences something entirely different grace, acceptance, forgiveness. See, that's what a Pharisee can never experience here. There's no grace, there's no forgiveness in Simon religion because you either keep the rules and you feel proud or you fall short and beat others up to make yourself feel better. But only through an impersonal, intimate, passionate relationship of grace through Christ is love, is passion, is forgiveness even possible. Only until you can actually see yourself in God's light will you understand there's no difference between a priest and a prostitute in God's eyes. We all fall wildly short, and we are all radically forgiven. Amen? Amen. We're made brand new by Christ's love. Can you feel that? Can you feel that? Has that clicked for you? If your faith has never made the journey from here to here, from your head to your heart, and you've never made it personal with Jesus, you only know Simon religion, you've got to bridge that 18 inches. 
Do not leave here without bridging it. Don't leave facing eternity and miss it by that much. Let your hair down. Pour it all out to Christ. Ask forgiveness. Ask actually for the gift of faith. Connect that for me, Jesus, and he will. I want to give you a chance, in fact, to do that right now. So let's just take a moment to bow our heads. Because some of you right now, you're facing this and you're, and, you're, and you're questioning, I don't even know how to bridge that myself, but we'll just offer that to God. Jesus, um, all our campuses, we're praying. Jesus, you say in your word, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you're just, and you're going to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Jesus, thank you for showing us your heart here in Luke 7 and inviting our sister into relationship and Simon to the table too. Lord, we come to you now in faith. We know that you will never reject anyone who approaches you in humility with dishonesty and repentance. So we take a moment and we confess our sins to you right now. Lord, thank you for forgiving me of my pride and my arrogance and my judgment so many years ago. Lord, thank you for rescuing my wife. Lord, keep saving me. Save all of us, Father. We put our trust in your love. Jesus, we, we, we believe, as people of faith, we believe you died on the cross for our personal sins and our personal place. And now we ask you to cancel every single one and cause us to come alive to the love, the power of God. With all our heads bowed right now, there's some of us here who maybe you have been outwardly religious and you've never made it personal. This is, this is your moment. If that's you, um, just keep your heads bowed. Maybe you've gone to mass or religious school. You've been, you know, to church or inherited the, the sterile faith of your parents, but you've never made it personal. It's too important. Don't miss eternity by 18 inches. God loves you too much to keep it stuck in your head. Just be honest with God. If that's you, you can pray along with me right now. In fact, let's just all pray aloud together in one big loud voice. We don't want to make it feel awkward. Everybody together, uh, repeat after me. Jesus, I believe you love me. I believe you died to save me. And in faith, I come to you. My sins are many. I ask your forgiveness. Cleanse my heart. Be my Savior. Connect my head with my heart. I make it personal today. If that's your prayer, let's keep our heads bowed. Just for the first time, you are making this personal. You're asking God literally today. You're, you're saying, you know, would you move from my head into your heart? If you pray that for the first time, just shoot your hand up. Let us know. This is your moment. You said, you know what? Awesome. I see that hand over there on the right-hand side. Praise God for you. That is amazing. In the back on the left-hand side, you are in God's family. That is incredible. Praise God for you guys. That is amazing. Father, you see these hands. Um, Father, um, this, is, this is between your children and you, Lord. And we just want to confirm this moment, Father. Ignite. Come into these, these hearts, Lord, that are open before you. And Lord, connect our head with our hearts so that every fiber of our being is surrendered to your son, Jesus Christ. We ask that in the power of his name. And all God's people said together, amen. amen.